1: filmmakers it's time to use soldo soldo is a payment solution that replaces petty cash given to employees and production assistants when in prep on set or in post-production soldo is a multi-user expense account that helps you control business spending you can give soldo cards to some or every employee to entire teams or even contractors instantly transfer funds to all card holders and you can use soldo for free for three months with the code FilmmakersPodsoldo.com. Listen for more info in today's episode of the Filmmakers Podcast.
2: Dale Fix Network
1: Hello and welcome to episode 267 of the Filmmakers Podcast this is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to eff it up in a very, very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson. And today on the show, I am being interviewed. Myself and Jennifer Sheridan are interviewed by the fantastic Dustin Murphy, who runs Kino, which is a short film festival. It is also a platform where filmmakers can talk discuss and there are talks going on which is where myself and Jennifer Sheridan sat down with Dustin and did a talk. It is live. It wasn't long after we could all start going out again so it all feels fresh and exciting and to be in a room talking to people was amazing. For those of you who don't know uh, Jennifer Sheridan, she has been on the Filmmakers Podcast before. She's a brilliant director. She made the movie Rose, a love story and currently her TV series uh, which she directed, Rules of the Game, is on BBC right now. Dustin uh, does talk about our credits in his intro, so I won't bore you with any more of mine. We do talk about how we started directing, how we raised money for our films, how Jennifer and I got agents, how we got cast, how we approached distributors with our films, and why you need to take control of your own film, why you need to be bold. We also talk about film festivals. We also do loads of audience questions as well in this session, which was called Short to Features. We'll be right back. back. That is what we talk about. It's a really good session. Like I say, Dustin is a brilliant host. Uh, Dustin himself is an award-winning filmmaker who won the Best Student Short when he was 18 at Shriekfest. He's just recently finished directing his debut feature film. As we recorded this, he was about to go do it. He was literally three days away from shooting it. He has now completed it. It's called Coyote. Huge congratulations to you, Dustin. I can't wait to have you on the podcast yourself and I can ask you questions about how you did that. The film stars uh, Therica Wilson-Reed and Borislava Ava as well. So huge shout out to Greenlit who sponsored the event and to Kino themselves uh, run by Dustin. They have their film festival coming up in April. It supports all levels of filmmakers from absolute beginners to career professionals who pride themselves on being approachable in the all too often intimidating industry. Kino are infamous for their short film open mic events. Uh, which is a a safe space for filmmakers to experiment, test out their work in front of an audience of about 50 to 80 fellow filmmakers. Tina also runs the online short of the week series Uh, they host networking opportunities short film production support and they run the people's film festival that's what's coming up april 2nd to the 9th there's going to be live events in london and also streaming online the festival features 40 short films panel discussions with filmmakers and industry professionals loads of networking parties and you can attend the festival and you can help decide which filmmaker walks away with their £1,000 short film fund. For more info, go to keynoteshortfilm.com. Links to all that is in the show notes. So speaking of Greenlit, who did sponsor that event, they are launching a new initiative called Greenlit You It's basically a structured program of business training, but for creative people it's mostly film but it also does cover theater and music as well so all creatives it's not just crowdfunding because that's what greenlit is known for crowdfunding indie films but it is about doing your own stuff independently but i've noticed that most creatives struggle with the business aspects of filmmaking how do you do the paperwork how do you approach investors in the right way so Greenlit you are covering marketing, branding, press and PR festivals and strategy for you and also on tax credits as well. So they're doing these every fortnight at first and if they prove popular, they'll probably do one a week. The sessions are normally £15 each, but we've got a code for you. So you can get in free and anyone you invite, if they use the code FILMPOD15. And also you don't have to attend in person, you can attend online. The first one is this Wednesday, the 16th. It's literally tomorrow at 6 o'clock. If you can't make that one, then sign up for the next one. Link is greenlit.com forward slash you. Do it. This is a free session for you filmmakers. This is why we do this podcast, why we get free information out there to help you make your films. Take advantage. Pete and the guys at Greenlit are amazing. Make the most of it. Link to that is in the show notes. Right, next week, we have on the producers of followers. I helped produce this movie as well. It is finally out there. It is in cinemas from next week as well. It is a found footage horror movie. It's funny, it's brilliant. The performances are amazing. And Steve and Tracy Jarvis are joining me and you next week to chat about how they made followers and also how they made their films A Street Cat Named Bob and Anna and the Apocalypse. Do not miss that. For now though, sit back, relax and enjoy Dustin's chat with myself and the
3: lovely Jennifer Sheridan. Enjoy. As I said, I'm framing this entire conversation around the fact that I've been making shorts since I was about 10. I was one of those kids in the backyard with mom's video camera. And uh, being born and raised in California, I started studying film really in junior high as the seventh grader at 13. And I went on to do the festival competitive festival circuit at age 14. And I won my first international film festival for a short called Repossessed at age 17. I then optioned my second screenplay at the age of 18 to Joel Castleberg, who produced Noah Baumbach's first three films um, in the 90s. So ever since then, I've kind of feel like I've just been spinning my wheels, trying to get my first feature off the ground and having a lot of false starts, having a lot of industry rejection. And I'm just kind of done with it. I decided in 2021, I'm going to make a feature film regardless, even if it's on a shoestring budget, I'm not asking for permission anymore. And I want to talk to two people who have already made feature films and have a good history of making short films to learn exactly how To do it. So um, I'll start with their bios. So, Jennifer, this is your bio. Uh, having grown up in South London, Jennifer worked her way into the industry using self-taught editing skills and ultimately became a respected scripted comedy editor on The League of Gentlemen and Cuckoo. Her directorial debut fantasy series, The Snow Spider, aired on BBC in 2020, and she has just completed production on the four-part drama uh, Rules of the Game for BBC One. Jennifer's debut horror feature, Rosa Love Story, premiered at the BFI London Film Festival, and was nominated for the Biffa Raindance. Discovery Award. So thanks for joining us. And Giles Alderson, who is a director, producer, and writer, and also actor.
1: Not anymore. There's too many hats.
3: Giles recently directed the psychological thriller feature film Stranger in Our Bed, starring Emily Barrington, Humans, Ben Lloyd Hughes, Divergent, and Samantha Bond, Downton Abbey, for Buffalo Dragon Pictures, and is now in post for Wolves of War, the WW2 action thriller for Signature Entertainment, starring Ed Westwood from Gossip Girl, Rupert Graves from Sherlock. His horror feature film The Dare, which he co-wrote with Johnny Grant for Millennium Films, at New Boyana studios uh and stars richard Brake from batman and 31 alexandra evans from redistributors bart edwards fantastic beasts uh richard short vinyl public enemies robert masser from mi5 rogue nation is now available on sky movies itunes amazons playstations google play and netflix and uh for netflix it was actually um Trending number three over Halloween, wasn't it? I couldn't believe it. But yes, it was.
0: <laughs> That's amazing.
3: Uh, his second feature, the historical action drama Arthur and Merlin: Knights of Camelot, for Picture Perfect and Signature Entertainment, starring Richard Short, who was in Macbeth, a stellar Stockard, Blythe Spirit, uh, Richard Brake, uh, Game of Thrones, is available now on Amazon, where I just watched it recently great film, DVD, and Sky Movies. He directed and produced the World of Darkness feature documentary, an in-depth look at how uh, the World of Darkness and Vampire the Masquerade role-playing game created the phenomenon in 1990s. And... You have a very long bio. This is very good. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And he recently produced the comedy Three Day Millionaire for Shush Film, starring Cole Miani from Star Trek, uh, Robbie Gee from Snatch, and Jonas Armstrong from Robin Hood. Other producing credits include the dark comedy feature film A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, available on Sky Movies, and the sci-fi drama Repeat, and the found footage Horror Followers. Welcome, guys. Thank you.
2: Thanks for having us.
3: All right. So what I want to do tonight is kind of track your journeys from the beginning and then also just kind of have a really open and honest discussion about the struggles it is being a filmmaker, both, um, you know, the struggles we face in the industry, our own mental health and, you know, just dealing with it ourselves. So now I want to start by just like taking me back to the beginning. Right. So I did some stalking, some IMDB stalking. So Giles, From what I can tell is that you started out as an actor. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So your first acting credit on IMDb is from 2003, (laughs) six years prior to your first uh, directing credit. So did you start out wanting to be an actor and then said, "Uh, actually, I'd rather be behind the camera or tell me about that journey?
1: Yeah. I only ever wanted to act. It was something, it was either football or acting and I... I'd managed to get quite far with football and then I'd just get my shoulder and say, like, oh, what else can you do? Okay, uh, reasonably, I was in the school plays and whatever. So I'd, they put me, you know, onto some acting courses and I loved it. And then after sort of university and then drama school, it's like, oh, suddenly you're an actor, but you've got no idea of how to be an actor. It's like, there you go, go out into the world and be. Um, and I managed to do some Shakespeare and I eventually got some really cool uh, TV and film Some really nice stuff. And in in fact, I got to live my dream when I did The Damned United because I got to play football and be in a film about football, uh, which to me was an absolute fucking joy. And worked with Michael Sheen and Stephen Graham. And uh, it's just the best. But during that time, I never thought I'd be a director, but I was putting on plays at the Royal Court Young Writers Programme. So I was always writing from a young, young age. I was putting on things in assemblies and stuff like that. And people going, what are you doing? (laughs) Why are you doing this? Um, But I loved it. There was something about it I loved. I just felt that if I went into directing, it would get in the way of acting. So I just carried on acting, but writing and putting things on. And we started to make things, but I'd never really directed them. I kind of wrote them. And everyone said, you should direct. And I was like, yeah, but it's getting in the way. I want to be an actor. And, and then we were doing something for the BBC, they wanted us to do a pilot of this comedy sort of series we'd written, and the director pulled out a couple of weeks before and I went, oh, fuck it, I'll do it, i put my hand up, right, I'll do it, I don't want this to fall apart, I'll do it, and I happened to have just done a feature that I was acting in, a uh, nice horror, and the DP of that said that I was quite good friends, and I said, look, would you mind coming and doing this it's rather than me holding a camera and not knowing what I'm doing? And suddenly I got this amazing team. He brought his red camera. He brought his his grip and gaffer. And suddenly we had this thing. And I remember going, oh, wow, this could be actually something. Shit, I've got to be in it as well. I'm playing a nice role in it. And then this moment arrived when it's the first day of filming. And I'm like, fucking hell, I've got to actually direct this. And I prepped it. I'd, I'd listened to whatever. Oh, there was no podcast then, but I'd read the books. And I'd asked some friends how to you know, do it. And I'd been on the set so many times. I kind of felt I knew what I was doing. And... I remember that moment of just falling in love so deeply. It's like getting a new puppy or people say, when you've got a baby, you, you can't help but go, oh my God, this is incredible. I love this. And the hardest part actually was when I had to act to myself and be in it and sort of go, okay, close upon me. I felt like such a <laughs> dick had saying it. And I, I've refused to ever do it again. I've never um, acted in something I've directed since. I just didn't want to. And f- at that moment I was like, right, I want to direct now, I want to do this as my career, how do I transition from being an actor to a director? And that took 10 years of hard graft till I actually managed to direct a feature film.
3: And what was the name of that project? That was The Dare. That was The Dare. Oh,
1: no, oh, sorry. No, the, the actual BBC yeah, pilot. Yeah, Oh, that was called Barry Brown. Um, it sadly didn't get picked up. Uh, it was a really cool little idea about a stripper um, who-
2: Called Barry. T- called
1: Barry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who went around trying to be a stripper in an age when it was crap to be a stripper and no one cared about strippers before Magic Mike and stuff. And he went through all his adventures of the world. Could still, if someone wants to make it, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> just give me a credit uh yeah so that was that project and we love doing it but it, yeah that's what made me fall in love with wanting to be a director and and i love working with actors you know that was that was what i loved about the theater side of it was the joy of working with actors it was fine to speak to a dp and say hey this is where i want to put the camera and i want it to look a bit like this and they would go okay and they would do their job and you go oh my god Did I do that? No, you did, but I'm taking the credit. So it was kind of that weird balance. But for me, it was working with actors, which I loved. I loved playing with them and pulling a performance out. And that to me was... What made me fall in love.
3: Nice. And then you also produce a lot of your own directorial work as well. So did you, did you produce Sperry Brown? Yes.
1: We did everything. It's when you're first starting out and trying to make something. You do everything. You're literally getting the food there, making sure people are there, organizing the props, setting it all up. You d- you just do everything, right? So, yeah, I, I did everything. Along with other people. It wasn't just me. There were some other amazing people helping me do
3: that, for sure. And then, uh, so Jen, I know, uh, unlike Giles, you don't typically like produce your own work, no. but you did produce the first one. Was that Rocket, right?
2: Oh yeah, but that was literally just me at home with a 5D and my dog. So I didn't really need a producer to be <laughs> pre- <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely. It's,
1: it's an amazing show. If you've not seen it, really go check it out. Don't pick so it up. Good. It's so good. <laughs> it's that and that,
2: good.
3: that won the Virgin contest.
2: <laughs> it did, it did, yeah. yeah.
3: And then, but your uh, main entrance point into the industry was actually as an editor. Right. So tell me a little bit about that transition from being an editor, how you found gigs as an editor to saying, oh, no, I'm actually going to direct my own short now.
2: Well, I sort of fell into editing at university and really enjoyed it and then managed to blag myself a job sort of doing bits of editing and motion graphics for this guy who just hired me as like a ex-student, but he was very bad at paying me. So I ended up having to leave that job (laughs) in order to get some money. And then I was just kind of kicking about editing anything that I could get my hands on. And eventually I managed to kind of wangle my way into this really weird TV company who did this Iranian version of X Factor as I was editing that. And then they also did the comedy awards and I said, can I edit that as well? And they said, yeah, we'll chuck you some VTs you can cut. So that was my first proper like British credit as an editor. So I immediately approached an a- agent and said, I'm an editor. <laughs> Look, I've done all this weird stuff. And they were like, okay, we'll we'll take you on We'll see what you're about. And I said, by the way, I really want to edit comedy. That's my passion. And they said, okay, we'll try and help you out there. And they did. And I got lots of sort of panel shows and like comedy kind of factual entertainment shows and sort of built a really good CV. But I wanted to edit films. Well, first I wanted to edit scripted comedy, but there was like a list of five names in this country and they were all guys. (laughs) And I was like, okay, maybe that's not going to happen. But I really want to edit films, feature films. So I spoke to some editors who edit like Harry Potter and things like that. And I said, how did you do this? And they said, well, we worked with directors that were on the up and when they got their first feature they took us with them and I was like oh amazing so I just need to meet directors I need to work for directors so I was editing like tv shows for my day job and then in the weekends and evenings I was editing short films and like trying to meet directors going to things like this and like meeting directors and offering my services and didn't have much of a social life as you can imagine but It sort of didn't work out. And a lot of the directors that I worked with would make one short and then never make anything else. And I was like, I can't hang my dream of being in films and working in films on someone else's success. So I thought, I'm just going to make a short film myself, which I did with my dog. And it won a prize, which was 30 grand to make another film with the BFI. But I wasn't ready for that. So I made two very short little films between that rocket and a BFI short and then when I made that short I thought oh that's it I'm, I've made it you know and people were like come and meet us agents and stuff but nothing really happened you know they'd meet me and then they'd say oh what are you doing next and I'm like I don't know I thought that's what you, you tell me <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> and they were like no no you you do the work and we'll sign you when you're successful. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so I realized, you know, I just had to keep puzzling. So I just made more short films, uh, probably made too many short films. I think i made about 13 in all, uh, which is a lot, but it did pay off and I got an agent off the back of it. And yeah, that's how it happened.
3: Cool. All right, so Jaws, we'll go back to you. Um, I know according to IMDb again, you can correct this wrong. You made seven shorts from 2009 to 2014, including 47 Cleveland, which won some festivals, um, played at the London Short Film Festival. Was that BAFTA qualifying at the time?
1: I have no idea. It might have been.
3: Yeah. I didn't look, look too far into
1: stuff like that. I so don't know uh, what
3: was your experience as a short filmmaker in the festival circuit? And did you really see that as a route to get into the industry? No, I, I It,
1: was a li- it I knew it was, and it was so important to do that and to go show your films there and be there. But whenever I went to any of the short film festivals, for me, nothing really happened at all. It was just, you were just another filmmaker there. And it was great to meet other filmmakers and talk about stuff, but it, it never led to ever for me to go and make my first feature, that's not how it happened. I'm sure it does for some people, but for me it didn't work at all. I love going to them, it was great to talk to filmmakers, but I was talking to someone who was always up my level, it was the same, we were always in the same boat. So it wasn't like there was producers there going, oh cool, hey tell me about your project, oh send it to me off, on the off chance. But I knew that by making shorts it was a gateway for me to be able to make features. As it turned out, actually, it didn't matter at all. And maybe I'll come to that in a minute. But no, making shorts for me was just about learning and getting better and practicing as a director because no one would give me a chance to make a feature. So it was like, okay, well, I'll make a short in my back garden. I'll make a short with a mate, with an actor friend. And I was lucky enough that I did know enough actors or did know enough DPs. Like I suppose you are saying coming from the editing side, me coming from the acting side. I did know people and therefore you could ask. And that's something I say to anyone now is ask, we've got nothing to lose. If I hadn't asked that DP to come and shoot with me, he's he's like BAFTA winning DP for so much telly now. If I hadn't asked him to come and do the, the Barry Brown I, I don't know if I'd been where I am now. And it was just because I, I said, do you know what, fuck it, I'm just going to ask. And sometimes you need that fuck it button, just press the fuck it button. <laughs> I'm going to go ask someone, will you help me? And you'd be surprised by the amount of people that will help you, especially if your script's good, if your short's good, and it's only a day for them or whatever, two or three at the most. And do you know what, they don't, they don't mind. So that's a huge, huge lesson that I should have asked more. I might have got further earlier.
3: I don't know. And then, Jen, so, I mean, you did Rocket by yourself with your dog and then was lucky enough to win the uh, that BFI grant. Tell me about your festival journey with your shorts. Were you trying to kind of go around the festival circuit with it? Did the BFI support already come with, like, festivals that automatically accepted your film like what was that journey look like
2: well i guess the thing is you sort of look at how other people have done it and quite often they make a short and it gets nominated for a bafta and then suddenly they're a working director and i was like that's what i need to do i need to get nominated for a bafta and then everything's (laughs) just gonna like fall into place but every short that i made got was qualified would get into festivals that would qualify it for the baftas and i'd enter the baftas and every year they would say no And I was like, this is never gonna happen for me because I put so much on the BAFTAs. I was like, that's the only way. Whereas it's not at all really. Um, I know directors who were nominated for BAFTAs who aren't directing now. So that was just my mistake at the time. But the festival circuit was brilliant because that's how I met my producers who produced my first feature. I've made lots of friends that way that I've stayed in touch with and have like invited me to things. So I think it's, festivals are better for networking, but I don't know how you turn them into a career <laughs> necessarily, unless you maybe get nominated for BAFTA.
3: Every year, more shorts are made than the year before. So, I mean, right now in the festival circuit, there's about 10,000 short films in circulation, and the biggest short film program um, is like 300 shorts, right? So I was just wondering, in your experience, did you notice... Every year, it became more competitive, more harder to make it. Sometimes I just have the nagging suspicion that starting at short film, making the leaps to features gets harder every year. Anything to say about that?
2: The thing is, you know, no one tells you that it is really hard. It's obviously incredibly hard. But when you're young, you kind of think, oh, I'll get into a festival and then something will happen. And net doesn't necessarily do that. But actually, even getting into a few festivals is a good thing. Because really what you're doing when you make a short is you're building a body of work that when you go to an interview for something, you can present and say, look, I made a drama or look, I made a sci-fi. And That's, that's how you should see it. Festivals are great and fun, but don't worry if you don't get into the big ones because you're just building a body of work. And that's, for me, that's the most important thing.
1: Mm. Yeah, I stopped. I didn't. Get into so many festivals with my shorts. i often wrong with the shorts, they're fine, you know what I mean? Whatever. They were fine shorts, but I didn't get into any of the big ones. So I just stopped applying. It costs money. It's expensive. And I was at a point where I was, okay, well, what is this short going to do for me if I try and put it in the bigger festivals that I'm probably not going to get into? So I chose very specifically which festivals i would put it in just so i could get some laurels it was a really weird so i'd go okay let's be strategic here okay this is a bit more horror a bit more thriller i'm going to specifically go to these festivals rather than blanket the best ones just because it's true if we got a after you know biffa you're going yay cool this should open doors and again it doesn't necessarily mean it will but I just saved money. It was about money. You know, it's about I'm trying to be a, a working director. And at that time, I was making whatever corporates and promos and bar mitzvah videos, whatever the fuck I could get my hands on. I was. I was doing anything to learn how I could be better as a filmmaker because then I learned to edit. I'm so glad I learned to edit. It's one of the best things I did as a filmmaker without a shadow of a doubt. And that was because I had to earn some money and force myself to do bar for videos or corporates I didn't want to do. And I had to teach myself on YouTube how to edit movies or videos at the time. And that was the difference. But festivals never, I, I never thought of festivals really were the route for me to make a feature. I wanted to prove that I could make a short that was good enough to show someone who might be able to give me some money. So I wasn't thinking of the money from the festivals or or uh, BFI, just because I just didn't feel like I fit in. It was one of those things, and I still do. It's a very strange thing oh, for I me. I
2: still feel that way as well, yeah. Isn't it
1: weird? Certain people fit into those boxes, and, and I still apply now. You know, We just shot Three Day Millionaire in Yorkshire, I was just saying a minute ago, and that's I'm from Yorkshire, Screen Yorkshire didn't give us a penny. And you know we'd we shot that in. I raised all the money ourselves. So we just wanted some money, some help, some support. It still didn't happen. you kind of like, okay, hang on. I've made a load of features. Okay. And I'm making this one. We're in Yorkshire. Hey, come and play. No, no sandbox for us. All right. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not against them. You know what I mean? It's like good for you doing what you do, but it, don't necessarily think you're going to fit into the boxes people want you to fit into. Find your own route to making your feature because no one's going to, plough that path for you. No one's going to open the door and go, Hey, come and join us over here. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist.
2: It's it's not right. No, you're so, you're so right. I remember being in Soho once and being outside Delaney Lee where they kind of do the sound design for like Toy Story and stuff. And I remember staring at the building and being like, this is part of what I cannot enter. I can't even get into this building. Like this, the film industry is this impenetrable fortress and I'm on the outside and I'm never going to get in. And I just remember feeling that and just thinking, But I can't stop. (laughs) Like, I can't stop making shorts and I can't stop trying because it's just in me. It was just propelling me forward. Yeah. But now I'm not even sure that there is an infrastructure for the film industry. It's bonkers. No,
3: I think you do think that more like there's an in and an out. And if you're out, you just have to get in. And then most people... And then every... Person that you meet that's further in than you, you realize, oh, they feel like they're out too. Mm. Yeah. And you know, yeah. and yeah. you never get to that point to where you're like, oh, right, you are the quintessential absolute filmmaker.
1: Yeah.
2: Absolutely. I've made a film and I don't feel like I'm in the film mm-hmm. industry.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm, I'm doing the the filmmakers podcast, I met so many amazing filmmakers, and they've literally told me the same thing. Like, I still don't feel like I fit in. I still don't feel that I am. At that level. And you're like, hang on, you've won an Oscar. And they're like, yeah. Okay. And it does, they, they generally mean it. I don't fit in. And that's okay, right? We're, we're all outcasts or we're all our own individual weirdos that why we want to do this in the first place. So accept that. Don't try and fit into this box that doesn't exist. If it does for you and it works and you get through, great. Embrace it and make the best of it. But that's one in a million, in my opinion. Anyway. As you know, uh, this week's Filmmakers Podcast is sponsored by Soldo.com, which is a payment solution that replaces petty cash given to employees or runners. And myself and Tobias. Hey, Tobias. Hey, mate. We've been chatting with Teddy. And Teddy is an accountant who is turning into a screenwriter. Isn't that right? Oh, yeah. And he's really good at it as well. As you know, he got Ryan Reynolds interested in his script. And we asked Charles to read the script, give some notes. Did you read it? Do you know what? because i've been on set three day millionaire uh, and the other film i managed to find some time because i gave the soldo card to my pa so they could buy you know props and coffees and stuff and that gave me a bit more time to read the script and i did and i've got some notes you ready i'm ready okay my first thought on the accountant is the scene uh, where the accountant is cornered is outnumbered yeah that that's brilliant but teddy you need to excel yourself more to help breathe life into your characters you need to work your assets off because the third act didn't add up at all thank you i will pass them on to teddy and hope he will take them into account <laughs> <laughs> now there's a brighter way to pay for advertising software travel expenses online procurement and more and luckily for you it's three months free soldo with code FilmmakersPod. soldo Check it out. We should get back to the show.
3: This is is the part that um, anytime I'm listening to a podcast, listening to interviews that I I never feel that I get enough information about. And that's people say, oh, I was struggling. I was doing this. I was doing these little projects. And then, oh, I made this. And then now I'm a feature film director. It's that that (laughs) period in between. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Giles, you had your shorts. Yes. You said, you know, you were probably like knocking on doors, showing people your shorts. What was that portion of your journey like? Uh, The journey to actually make that first feature? And how did you get something greenlit in that way?
1: It was the hardest time. Uh, It was just devastating constantly, waiting for other people to do something for me or my project. God, the amount of arsehole producers I went through, and I don't mean that literally, um, uh, they were just constantly promising something or constantly saying, this is going to happen. Oh, I've just spoken to Arclight. I've just spoken to Sony. I've just, really, have you? and then you would be i'd hear it all third person so for 10 years i banged my head against a brick wall apparently i had jason statham attached to one of my project um <laughs> that i'd written we were like great yeah this is actually happening and i have fucking no idea if it happened i know i went into a huge meeting at um 20th century fox from one of my scripts i sat there with all the execs from 20th century fox this is amazing this is great here we go they love your film where you're the best great fuck all happened and i think that just says everything about this industry Don't 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 expect so yeah for 10 years i was just in pain of trying to be a filmmaker and reading the books of all these people who'd made it and gone through and again there was always that gap you're absolutely right between someone going, oh, I'm going to suddenly I've made my short and now I'm an Oscar winner and now I'm this. You're like, well, no, but that bit, that bit. <laughs> that's what I want to know. For me, it was constantly knocking on doors, constantly writing things, constantly trying to make my shorts better, constantly making a better reel, constantly making a better website, constantly meeting dickhead producers, which I really tried to avoid, but you couldn't help it because they were promising you something, anything, and you were grabbing hold of it. And again, another huge tip is if someone you think you should let go of let go of them. Because you can spend far too long hanging on someone's coattails who's promising you something. The sooner you can let them go, either they'll come running back and actually go, no, no, I've actually got something. Or you'll move on with your career so much faster. I spent far too long hanging on the coattails of assholes. And some of them are probably lovely people. Hey, all the best to them. But for me, (laughs) me, they were assholes. And I spent far too long doing it and also working with the wrong people. And that is something very important to try and work with the right people. It's very hard to do. I know when you're starting out, because anyone sort of puts a hand up, you want to grab onto it and you join this team together and we can do it together. Sometimes it doesn't work and you need to be brave and say, this isn't for me. And I did that eventually, but it took me too long. So during that 10 years, I'll try and make this short, though this is the bit you all want to know, so maybe not. (laughs) Uh, I was trying to like, say I'd written stuff, I was banging on doors. We were like, hey, this might happen. Applying to BFI, applying to whichever funds and obviously nothing went through. Tried to make a drama up in Middlesbrough, which was really dark about drugs and that clearly unless we had a name wasn't going to happen. We had this sci-fi which Jason Statham was apparently attached to and then we had an action thriller that we had a lot of other people attached to and constantly just things weren't going. But I was always third party. I was always the person ringing someone who then rings someone else to get an answer. So I was never hearing it myself. And I got to the point where I went, fuck this. I can't do this anymore. I need to be the person speaking to the person. Otherwise, what am I doing? I'm just, I was just getting frustrated by not a phone call that day or whatever. Um, and I happened to be doing an advert. I would still doing adverts when I was still acting during that time. I was anything for money or whatever. And I've wonderfully, I happened to have a great time doing adverts. <laughs> I suddenly visited, I was the advert boy for a while. So it was great. So lucky enough, I could get by um, just about, and I met this guy on one of the adverts who said, oh, I, I do films over in Yubayana Studios in Bulgaria. And I was like, OK, all right, sure you do. All right. <laughs> he was in a helmet. He was covered in a full helmet. You couldn't see his face in his he was Like, Yeah, I'm a big star in Bulgaria. I went, are you? <laughs> OK, cool. Anyway, we got chatting. We became really good friends. And I said, look, I've got this project called The Dare. It wasn't called The Dare at the time, but for, for ease. And he said, uh, well, look, send it to me and I'll send it across to get it evaluated by the studio over in... I went, okay, cool, whatever, so sent it across to him. But a month later, this evaluation came back and it was an incredible evaluation. You're like, wow, this is amazing. Cool. Do they want to make the movie? No, they don't want to make it right now. They're not looking to, all right, for fuck's sake. Okay, cool. So uh, like I said, I'd written so many things that just kept falling by that I didn't own. And I really want to make it important that if you're not a writer, find a writer who you can collab with very closely and own that project. If you don't own it, your shit. You, you can be kicked out any second. And that's the sadness of it. So, if you can't write, I really hope you can because that's your goal, that's your ticket. If you can't find someone you can and collaborate with them, I was lucky enough to, that I'd written plays. I was just about good enough to get away with it. But I like to collaborate with other people. So, I started to do that. But I owned them, they were mine. And that's the mistake I'd made in the past of having other writers and me owning the option for 18 months. And then shit, you have to pay more money every year and pay more money to get that option. Um, And so I wrote The Dare with a wonderful guy called Johnny Grant. I owned it. It was mine. And suddenly because it was a genre piece, I knew who my audience was with it. It's a gore type film. I knew the horror market I was aiming for. I was like, okay, well, this could sell here, this is how this could work. I'd made my shorts were kind of a similar vein. So I knew that that would work for me as well when I was showing people my work. That was very important. They weren't uh, romantic comedy shorts. They were very much similar. So I really thought about who I could target with this. And I, everyone I'd sort of reached out to really liked it. There was suddenly this buzz that, hang on, we could sell this. This is marketable. This is an easy, you could make this for maybe a hundred grand and we could sell this great. It's a, it's a simple concept four people in a basement. Um, they don't know why they're there. Someone keeps coming in and torturing them. There's a guy upstairs in the loft or in, above in the farmhouse and he's got a little boy and you don't know the connection, but you've got to work out how they're all connected. That's it. It's simple. Right. Um, and I was like, okay, cool. This works. We put in twist turns, all sorts of shit in there, lots of gore. And uh, suddenly these people were interested. So, and I was like, okay, are these genuine? One guy was an absolute joker, and but he said he wanted to put in hundred grand. I was like, well, it's a hundred grand. I get to make my movie, right? I can't turn this down. But I just didn't believe him as a producer. It was just someone I was like, this guy's gonna rip us off. He's gonna run off. It's never gonna happen. The money's not gonna turn up. And I was panicked, but I was desperate to make a feature film. Been 10 years by this point of pain and saying I'm a director and ugh, just didn't feel like one. And he'd said, yes, like the money's going to come. We're going to shoot in April. And I, went, I said to Julian, who was now producing the movie, I said, I can't, I, I'm really worried. And he went, shall I try the studio in Bulgaria again? And I went, yeah, fuck it. Tell him we've got a deal in the UK and, um, <laughs> and perhaps they, now's the right time. I got a call and he said, um, if you fly over to Bulgaria tomorrow, he will see you. Now, at this point in my life, I had no fucking money. I had like seven pounds to my name. I was like, he said, go over to Bulgaria tomorrow to the studio, go pitch for the exec. This is an opportunity. And I went, you, you've got to go. You have to do it. Right. What have you got? Uh, okay. Uh, see what I can sell. Any mates that, you know, hey, here my trainers, whatever I could do, I'll go, right. I get to give a ticket for 60 quid. I went, I can't stay in a hotel. Shit. I can't afford that. And They said very kindly, they would put me up in a hotel. I was like, great. I won't be able to eat when I'm there, but no fucking problem. I'll be pitching my movie to a studio. I said, fucking great. So I booked a flight, last bit of savings, went across, flew across, fucking shit myself. Now, what I'd done during that prep time was I had planned this film within an inch of its life. I'd done all my storyboards as best as I could do them. I had done all the short, I had everything ready to show. I'd done mood reels. I'd done a deck, loads of them. I was ready. I am maybe too overprepared. I don't know if that's such a thing, but I was ready. And I'm, So I flew over and it, I land in this, in Bulgaria. I don't know if anyone's been. It's an amazing city. It's totally weird. <laughs> I love it. And I'm in this hotel and it's like this big marble structured, place and I'm like fuck I can't even afford a fucking drink I'm gonna sit here and I wait and I wait and I think I'm just gonna sit here because I can't go out I can't do anything prepare get in the right mindset prepare for what you're gonna say over and over and then I just went shut up if you're gonna keep doing you're gonna fuck it up when he arrives he arrived late so already I'm shitting myself and I'm nervous but he arrives this guy in flip-flops and a t-shirt and shorts and I think oh fuck off (laughs) You're the head of the studio? Are you serious? Shit. And he comes, sits down, big American bear-like bloke. And he goes, hey, Giles. I went, no, it's Giles. I'll stop you there. (laughs) I have to be clear. Shit, was that too rude? Um, And now my brain's ticking over. And he's going, hey, let's just. And he just chatted to me like a normal person. And eventually, because we were chatting away about anything, football, anything I could get out. Let's just talk, talk. Hope he likes me. And eventually he said, right, tell me about the film. He knew all about the fucking film. He knew everything about the film. Looking back now, he knew everything, but he wanted to hear it from me. So I did my pitch. Luckily, I'd practiced. Luckily, I think I did it well enough. And I sold it. I sold him on the project. And he went, okay. And then he questioned me about me and what I was like as a person. And for me now, looking back, knowing what I've produced movies and working with other directors as well, What is important to me is what they're like. Now, if I'm going to spend two years or so with a director, with someone's project, you've got to like them. You've got to want to work with them. And that's what he was doing to me. He was assessing me. He was sussing me out. And we had an amazing time and I was really happy. And he went, okay, well, come to the studio tomorrow. Yeah, just come and have a look around. I was like, okay. And see if you can shoot the film there. I'm thinking, of course I can fucking shoot the film. <laughs> <laughs> shoot the film wherever the fuck you like. <laughs> I'll shoot it here. And he said, um, cool, come come have it. I was like, fucking all right, that means I've got to stay another night. I've got no fucking money. Um, no problem. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, he said, don't worry, you're here in the hotel. Great, great. So the next day, I went to the studio and I had a look around. A look, they had a canteen and there was some little snacks, and I'd eaten something. And I looked around this studio, it was the best thing in the world. You walk around, it's like Disneyland and, and um, uh, fucking Harry Potter world rolled into one, except there's no one there. And you're looking at this place going, oh my God, look at the set. There's a London set, there's St. Paul's, there's everything here you could wish for studios, buildings. And eventually, I, I I'd sit down with the the guy who was showing me around, and he and, and I knew my flight was coming up, and I knew I had to get back. I was like, "Where is?" He's called Yariv. The guy I said, "Where is he?" You know, and he's like, "Oh, he's just he'll be back soon." I am sitting there thinking, "Fuck! I need him here. I need him to say goodbye. I need to say I can shoot my fucking movie here. Please let me say that to your face." And and eventually, he did come back, and he was like, "So, can you shoot here?" And I went, "No, <laughs> no chance." Uh, and then we, then we had a laugh, and I went, "Of course I can't." of course I can shoot them over here. And he went, I'm over in a month's time in London. Have a think about it. Cause at this point he thinks it's green lit in London, by the way. So we've got this whole game going on. Fuck. He said, I'm over in a month. If you're still looking for a studio home in a month, let's talk. I'm thinking, yeah, I fucking will, but please shit. How am I going to do this now? Go back to London. Uh, we start, prepping the movie to potentially shoot it here. And this guy is just so full of shit. The guy we're making, yeah, he's never made another movie. So I'm, I'm not going to say his name, but he just didn't know what he was doing. It was just, I was like, oh God, how am I going to, uh, fuck, but I want to make a movie. But I've got Yariv and he's coming over. Anyway, he eventually a month passes, nothing had really moved forward. And I sit down with him and his, his other producer and I pitch it again and we have a laugh and we talk football and we talk whatever else. He was finding out about me. And then eventually he said, okay, let's make a movie. And it was that really weird moment of going, fuck, is this real? Is, I've heard that before. It's the American speak. But we went and made a movie. <laughs> Quite
3: incredible, really. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Yeah. That's amazing.
0: Oh, no, don't make me follow. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
2: I mean, that same
3: period of time for you, um, you know, going from all these shorts and then making you know rose a love story what did uh, how how did that come about
2: oh it's gonna sound ridiculous now because you were like hustling and going to bulgaria with no food okay (laughs) i got you got millions of pounds thrown at you yeah (laughs) i was (laughs) like no thank you no i don't (laughs) want it (laughs) no what happened was pathetic basically i was at denmark hill train station my agent sent me a script called Rose. And I read it on the train and I said, oh, that's nice. That's good. I like that. And then, and then I said, oh, yeah, no, it's nice. I like it. It's good. I said, also, it'd be a good first feature because it's like one location, three cast members, you know, like very achievable on a low budget. So maybe someone would give me that amount of money to make a film. Sounds promising. And he said, he said, yeah, yeah, well, come and meet the writer who is also an actor called Matt Stoko. So I met him. I told him how I would film make the film and he said that's exactly how I want to make it um so that's great and then we started working on the script together then Sophie Rundle from Peaky Blinders got involved because she was working with Matt on a show called Jamestown which is the sky show and she saw him writing the script on the plane back from Bulgaria actually and um she was like oh what you writing she read it she has some thoughts they were great then she came on to play Rose so we suddenly had like a know a named actor mm-hmm. attached then matt said you know i don't want to play sam but we were like play sam come on mate like you're great like, let's do it and he said okay fine i'll play sam so then we only had to cast one other like main role um so that was the one that we put out and got auditions for and then we sort of had a cast and stuff and we hired this line producer for a day to do a very basic budget for it and he said you need four hundred thousand pounds to do this film well I said, okay, good. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And then my agent, it's all down to him really, because he also repped Idris Elba as as a director. I know he does many things, but he's also a director. And he just finished making Yardi. So he went to the same funding body and said, I've got this little film, it's cast, I've got a director attached. We only need 400 grand. Do you want to? help us. And they said, yeah, but we're not going to give you 400 grand. We'll give you 200 grand roughly. And I found some producers that I'd met at a film festival in York back in 2014. And I said, look, they're saying we got 200 grand. I think we can do it for 200 grand. I don't believe this line producer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck let's just make it for two, like, let's just do it mm-hmm. uh, instead of waiting around to try and raise another 200 grand. So They said yeah we think we can do it let's do it so we found a location in wales and we shot it for 200 grand nice and i had loads of food (laughs) i was always eating
3: so your story brings up two questions from me and uh the, the first one is so you had an agent before you ever even made a feature and obviously that was instrumental in you making a feature how did you attract an agent and how can other people also attract an agent just working within the short form?
2: Well, because it's funny, because after I made the BFI short, I had loads of meetings with agents, and none of them wanted to sign me. So I was like, OK, well, screw you guys. I don't need you. And then a lot of my friends were getting agents and taking their foot off the gas, and nothing was happening for them. And I was like, see, agents. I knew I knew these guys were awesome. <laughs> right. I, like, I don't need one of these guys. <laughs> And I wasn't even looking for one. I was still in that kind of hustle mode of like, keep making shorts, like talk to the people that I'm editing for and see if they need a director to do anything, like try and wean my way in some other way. And then I got a phone call from this guy. He said, yeah, I I saw your IMDb because I was looking up Catherine Ryan and I saw that she was in your short, like the tiniest part. But I was like, okay, yeah, cool. He was like, do you want to come for a meeting? I was like, yeah, okay. Don't know who you are. That's fine. So I went for the meeting. (laughs) I was so jaded. I can't tell you how jaded I was. I hated the BFI. Mm -hmm. I hated all of those fuckers. I was just like, you're (laughs) C words. I'm not interested in any of you. I I was very jaded. Mm -hmm. I thought if it wasn't going to happen for me, it wasn't going to happen. And he just said to me, like, what do you want to, what film do you want to make? So I pitched him this film that I really wanted to make, which I still really want to make. And I hope one day I get to. Uh, And he went, oh, okay, great. Well, we'd love to sign you. I was like, oh, um, can I think about it? (laughs) He loves that. Yeah. And then I just happened to be going for coffee with my friend, Ben, who was friends with this producer called Fola, who just made Lady Macbeth, which got into the BFI and did really well. I said, have you ever heard of these people, the artist partnership? She was like, oh, yeah, Rob." I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the guy that I just met with. She was like, yeah, yeah, they're great. You should definitely sign with them. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't looking for an agent, basically, which is not helpful at all, is it really?
3: I don't know. It, I, I think maybe it is helpful because there's that level of confidence, I think, in both of your stories. Yes. Which is, it, it's, it's, it, it's yeah. that, it, like, it, it, I it, don't care. Yes. It yeah, was you, that. When you yeah, get that. so broken mm-hmm. to that point where you're like, I don't care. Then people are like, all right, we want to work with you. Oh, you actually care about your work? No, 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 no. Oh, okay, yeah.
2: Brian Cranston said it really well. Did you watch that Brian Cranston thing where he talks to actors? No? And he says to them that he used to go to auditions desperate for the part. And he, yes. everyone could sense his desperation as soon as he walked into the room. So he changed his attitude and he was like, do I want the part? And he went into every audition from that point thinking, do I want the part? And quizzing them on like whether... The part's good enough for him. Mm-hmm. And now he's like breaking bad. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. So quickly on agents, you have an agent as well. At what point did the, your agent come on board in your career? And last year, how did they, ha- oh, last year. So after they made the features, yes. after you made after the features.
1: After I made features. Yeah. yeah, no, it was all done without agents. Agents were knocking, but again, I was in that sort of, lot I'm doing this on my own type thing. And you're kind of courted CAA do this a lot uta they court you they sort of go hey we'd love to talk and you meet and then they go yeah just not now and you go what the fuck what do you mean not now <laughs> oh we just want to wait till you run a bath you well fuck i don't need you then you know what i mean so you you do this thing and again it's about being the outcast and about fighting for your own shit and it's only recently i got one just because i needed contract stuff helping me um i'm not necessarily saying you know they're good or bad but i'm saying i find my own work i always have and that is the best way to think about it if you rely on anyone like you were saying to find you work you're already done for it's already over you it's just not going to happen they've got too many people on their books to really think oh i know i'll really think about giles today no <laughs> no they're, they're doing other stuff with a cat in the house now so it's it's a very different world
3: very different so because uh, the, the other thing that really really bothers me is when you're you're out there you're doing your research you're like i'd really like to send my person my, my script to this person and you go on their website i'd like to send my person <laughs> i'm going to send my person to right. you <laughs> a, um and it says we do not except unsolicited material,
1: mm-hmm. Fuck them,
3: right? fuck them, send it anyway. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> no. I, so basically you don't have an agent. You are trying to like, you know, sling your script anywhere that you can. I've always seen that as this massive barrier that says, you know, unless you get an introduction with us, we don't want to hear from you. How did you get through that barrier?
1: It's really difficult. I, I'm finding that even now, aiming to make Hamlet next year a feature film and without an agent, it was really tough to get through the doors of the other agents of the stars. Luckily, we've already got a a really big name attached. So it really helps to go through that way. But still, the amount of people that just still went, nah, not interested. Oh, didn't even respond to your mail. And you're like, hey, I've got an official offer here coming. So unless it comes through the right doors at the bigger level, yeah, it's almost impossible or it's definitely harder. But I think At at indie film level, when you're making stuff for 200 grand, 10 grand, whatever you can make it for, it's all about relationships and who you know. And again, how we reached out on repeat for Charlotte Ritchie was... You know, the director, really, Richard, really liked her. He was like, I think she's brilliant. I think she would be amazing in the role. I said, hey, we're making this for like 12 grand, mate. She's not going to come and do this. It's very unlikely. He we went, well, I'd really like her. So can you approach the agent? We went, all right, we'll approach the agent. The agent was very happy to pass it to her and she loved it. And suddenly it was a go. And you were like, what? So... And again, she's not the massive name. She's not a Jude Lord type or Meryl Streep, but she's Charlotte Ritchie. And that, that makes a difference when you're suddenly then approaching distributors, which is another thing which is very important to think about when you're making a film is how are you going to sell the movie? But I think what was important for me and as much as I said, oh, and then we went and made the movie in terms of what happened next was then I still had, to pitch, so I flew over to Bulgaria and I was kinda there for about three months not knowing if my film was actually green lit. It was a very strange time, I'd cast it, I'd done everything in London and then I flew over and they kept pushing me back and pushing me back and saying, oh, that studio's not available now, or oh, that DP's not available, or oh, that person's not available. So yeah, so I'm in Bulgaria for three months, I'm eating by now, which is fine, but um, I'm literally on my own going, is this film actually ever going to happen? And I remember thinking, if I don't do something, it's, I feel like I'm going to be stuck in this loop of thinking it's greenlit when there's no actual official greenlit happened. So I, I was trying to find some way of trying to make it happen. And um, sadly, my Mrs's dad had died. So I was like, I need to go back to the funeral. But I knew if I flew back, this could end. This could all be over. I'm now not in their faces. I'm now not doing story, but I'm not, not there going, hey guys, hello, I'm still here. I'm now not, I'm out of sight, out of mind. Because it was an in-house movie and they don't often do that over there in Bulgaria. So I flew home going, oh fuck, oh fuck, I might have thrown away my best chance. And again, don't forget, I've wanted this for 10 years, as probably most of you in the room have. I thought, am I throwing this away? Is this my one chance? And I called him up after about a week, two weeks, Yarev, and I said... I don't know where this came from. I went, here's the date we're making the film. I'll be flying over on this date, and this is when uh, we'll be wrapped, and I'll make sure it's delivered by this date. And he went, okay. It It was as if he needed me to push it through and i think it was a huge lesson at the time that i was again waiting on other people to make decisions for me and for my film i didn't know i didn't know but as soon as i said this is what's happening i don't care if i don't get the best crew i don't care if i don't get the best studio i am filming it this date and this is what's happening and i think he just needed me to step up. He also wanted me to be the person who was the director. You're the director, fucking direct. What are you doing? Don't be all pussyfoot, oh well, let me know when it's happening. And I think that was a huge lesson for me moving forward is like, take control of your project, take control of shit that's maybe happening. And if you are working with producers or screenwriters or whoever it is who maybe isn't doing what you need, then fucking put a deadline on it. Fucking make shit happen. Because if you don't do it, who's going to do it for you? So by uh, you know a stroke of coincidence, luck for me, then I was able to push the button and go, "Fuck it, this is what's happening," and and that was really what tipped it over the edge. So when I flew back, it was dates were in, casts were flying over. Suddenly it happened as a proper greenlit production. So again, be brave, be bold. Don't let anyone tell you no,
3: and if they do, fuck off and find someone else. Do you know what I mean? So next I want to talk about that. You you had permission now to make your film or you made the permission yourself. So you've made the film and then comes the monumental challenge of distribution. Yeah. You had studio support at that time. Did they have distribution support for you? And same question to you, Jen. I mean, you had, you know, half the money that you said that, that the line producer said that you needed. You're like, all right, we're going to go make the film on this amount. Once the film is made, Where do you go from there?
2: Well, we did have a sales agent that was owned by Great Point Media who gave us that money. But when the pandemic happened or just before the pandemic happened, uh, the person who ran that department got really sick, unfortunately. And they closed down the department when she... I, I don't think she's alive anymore. That's quite sad. Um, but anyway, yeah, they closed down the department. So suddenly we didn't have a sales agent. So, But we had a film that we'd made. So my producers took it to various sales agents and we got, we got a couple.
3: And then you went to BFI.
2: And then we got into the BFI. Did you do
3: BFI? Did, did sales agents help with the BFI process at all for the BFI film festival, or you just did that cold call yourself submit?
2: Yeah. So considering all the shit that I've spoken about the BFI, uh, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, they did actually, you know, premiere my film, which I'm very grateful for. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Love you BFI.
2: (laughs) Thanks guys.
3: Right. And then distribution for, for you on the day. Yeah. Well, I was the good thing about,
1: uh, shooting in a studio is they do have a lot of connections and it is the studio's money. So they wanted to make sure it was distributed properly. Um, Millennium films, so obviously distributed the expendables and made the expendables and movies like that. They make those kind of movies uh, and a lot of that sort of, sort of Rambo and things like that. They make that kind of movie. So, Great movie. <laughs> So there was an option for this the Dare to be distributed through Millennium, but they wanted to see it first. So luckily they saw it and liked it and said, we'll distribute it. For me, that was huge because, you know, being an indie filmmaker, and again, it was an indie film, wasn't that much budget at all, really. Suddenly it was like you're being distributed by a big distributor is amazing. But what was interesting was it took four years before it came out. So. I shot this in 2016 and it came out in what, 2020 in the pandemic. Literally, the day the pandemic happened was my premiere. Brilliant, thanks. I've still not had a premiere. I've had so many films out and I've still not had one, which is amazing. I can't me wait either. for my first. So you not had one either? I didn't
2: even get to go to the Biffers or anything. It was all remote. Oh. Feel sorry for me, guys. Yeah, I feel
1: sorry for us. <laughs> <guys>. Oh, poor <boy>. you. <laughs> They're all like, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Millennium were, were disputing it. But because it took so long to come out, and I can maybe go into that a tiny bit in terms of we had to do pickups. The studio wanted a different ending. I had a proper British ending. If you've ever seen The Descent, there's two endings. Yes. There's the British ending and there's the American ending. I had the British ending, which was our baddie winning and walking up over the hill with heads on sticks and shit. It was fucking going to attack the wife of our hero. That was my film. That was what I wanted. And the Americans went, no, no, we need, we need more of a happy ending. I was like a happy ending fucking hell so we did we changed it so we stayed alive and actually weirdly worked out for maybe a sequel because there wouldn't have been one another way but anyway um that's maybe another story for another time <laughs> <laughs> but it took so long to come out because we had to do pickups of the movie and no one was available and again a studio wasn't available so it took so long for the movie to come out so actually arthur and merlin came out before the dare which was really weird because i shot sure it three years after I'd shot my debut movie. But during that time it killed me. I was like, you're a director, you've made a movie, but it hasn't come out and no one's seen it. You felt like a failure. You felt like you hadn't made a movie yet. So it was kind of a weird time, but I knew both those movies had distribution. So when the time came, (laughs) that it would actually be released, and and after Merlin was such a quick turnaround, I think it was six months from shooting to actually coming out. And I'm still going, "Yeah, *The Dare*, *The Dare*. One day, *The Dare* will come out." And yeah, eventually it did, and that was that was quite nice.
3: But yeah, it did have distribution. So that really, really helped. Nice. I do want to open up um, just any questions to the room at this point. Is there anybody who would like to ask a question? As far as being innovative filmmakers and coming from editing as well as acting backgrounds, are you looking at projects that like the virtual world, like virtual sets as well?
1: Mm, Great question. Yes. I've actually been looking into that a little bit recently. And I went to the ARRI test day where they had the big everything the screen all around it was incredible to watch um and see but it costs so much money so it's like 250 grand a week for your for your basic package oh, and in bulgaria it'd be cheaper to 100 but they haven't built this but they haven't built that there yet i think it's an amazing platform and they're doing it a lot in tv at the moment for car stuff and driving where you can control the background 100 percent I think it's great. If you've got lots of money, 100%. But there's no way indie filmmakers can, can afford to do it, in my opinion. Hey, I'm sure there's people out there who are doing it themselves, but not in the big virtual world at the moment. It, for me, it's too big a leap. Yeah, And not for a debut movie either. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> <Yeah>. good luck. <laughs>
3: Anything to say?
2: Um, are you talking about VR? Yeah. Oh, okay, Well, good. I mean, it's an aspect of it. Like, it's incorporated,
3: like The Mandalorian. Oh, that was shot. Uh, right. So you use a virtual set that takes place in the like, Unreal Engine or other like engine, like video game world. Yeah. Like, you're shooting it and you can uh, move the, the angles. So you're just constantly shooting. You don't have to like redress the set. Or
1: oh, it's incredible. Yeah, to-
2: I really want to be at that budget level someday. <laughs> That'd be cool. Yeah. But I don't think I am yet. I don't know, actually.
1: I think you are, but I think it's hard for... For us, if we, if we tell each side, yes, I know it's moving more in that direction because it's more expensive to lock down a road, especially if you've got, you know, what's the Tom Hardy movie lock when he's on that road? If you'd shot then a virtual, ste- well, yeah, it makes total sense. You can shoot that in a week for 250 grand. Brilliant. You've got Tom Hardy, fantastic, controlled, easy to shoot than on a, a low loader, which are a fucking nightmare to shoot on, by the way. Um, it just takes so long They're great They're beautiful But they take so long So we'll always schedule that It takes so long uh, More questions
2: Peter Jim Where can we see Rose takes? Um It's available on Sky Movies And iTunes And Amazon And I think it's free on Sky You have to pay for it on Amazon Which is a bit annoying But um, If you watch it I hope you like it It's
1: brilliant <laughs> Really good <laughs> Thanks back. So I've got a question for Each both of you guys um, Charles the director and someone who does both how do you feel so producing and raising your own money and having that sort of initiative and your own projects affected you as a director do you see doing both as having an influence on both practices yes uh, i think it's hugely valuable that any filmmaker learns as much about other aspects of Filmmaking as possible, especially when you're making shorts, you'd like to say you pretty much do everything. Editing is vital for a director. I just think it's one of the most important things. Working with actors and editing, you, you just become a better director on set.
3: Do you find that you're quicker yeah. as well? Because I mean, I, I edit all my own films as well, and I will, you know, shoot saying, I only need this part of the scene from that shot and I'm not going to go for coverage. Yeah, well, you
1: you know what you what editing. So it's vital to know, it, don't fuck around with the wides. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You spend far too long doing a wide shot and then you get to the editing, you're like, oh, fuck. I
3: get yeah. the beginning and the end you of be, my scene in the wides beginning and, that's and the it. <laughs> just,
1: just let's move on, get the close-ups. That's where the money is. And we do forget sometimes, we do it all the time. Even I do it still now. And like, stop doing the wides. Stop doing it. Do it, but just... So do a moving master, you know, do a Spielberg thing, you know, where you're moving master, think about your shots, not just there's a wide and spend fucking seven, eight takes doing it. It's a waste of time. Um, But your question was about uh, the producing side, yes. Obviously the way the industry is at the moment, in terms of you can't just really make one film, the government don't want you to do that. So you have to set up your company and your investors kinda have to have shares in your production company. And you have to at least show that you're gonna make three films. You have to at least show that. It's dickhead producers that I talked about before or arsehole producers I talked about before who ruined the system for us by making one film in their said named production company, closing it down before they'd finished the film, not paying people and then starting up another one and another and doing that on a regular basis, taking the tax credit, fucking people up and fucking indie filmmakers up big time. So now you have to do three at least do a slate of three. doesn't mean you need to shoot them, but you, you've got to show you're going to shoot them. And really, why not? So you have to set up your own production company officially to do it that way now. Um, so raising money for an independent film, which I've just done on 3 Day Millionaire, we raised all the money ourselves, totally independent, is, is to do that and to work out the shares and work out... <laughs> Oh, fuck it's so boring uh lawyer stuff accounting stuff it, but you you have to know it if you want to be an independent producer as a director hopefully you can find someone who can do that for you but as me doing both and doing the whole umbrella of it all I learned to do it and fuck me was it difficult and hard and spending time with lawyers and accounts that cost money as well but I learned so much by producing it's a different skill um I prefer directing because I like my circle of DP actors crew. I like that. I love playing in that sandbox. As a producer you're overseeing everyone and everything. You're kind of a therapist and a teacher all rolled into one and it's re- you have to be have the right mindset for it and you have to be prepared to get shit and then get shit done on top of that and put out fires constantly it's really difficult I p- t- take my hat off to any producer who does it in the indie film world when you're not getting paid much money it is really fucking hard um, so yes you've got to put everything into that side of things um, I think that answers your question a little bit right and your question for Jen <coughs> really, said, uh, it was a really um, Jen the question I have for you is you, know, you mentioned when you
3: with the FI grant. You felt, despite all of that recognition of the institutions, you know, it still didn't feel like you were closer to making a feature and frustration the there. Now, having made a feature, having made a TV show, and a drama development, do you feel like feature number two, as given the reception, having made a feature, do you think that it's going to be easier to make a second feature, or do you think it's another moonshot kind of energy?
2: Well, no. I- definitely think having a first feature is kind of like a tick next to your name it's like which is why I didn't do my passion project as my first feature because I was so Mm. worried I was gonna fuck it up (laughs) I was like I don't want to fuck up the thing that I'm really really passionate about not that I'm not passionate about rose I really love rose I don't give it two years of my life and I love it but it was like I knew that I was you know it was my first feature and I was going to be learning so much doing it that I it was almost like a badge of honor that I needed to get to get to where I really want to go. So, um, which is why it's really wise when you're thinking about your first feature to think about small locations, not too many locations. If like, for example, in my film, we bought out all these cabins in the wood and we lived in the cabins and we shot in the cabins and, you know, ways that you can save money and be like super clever about it and not too many cast members and all that kind of stuff. So now I'm looking at my next feature and I've been sent a bunch of scripts and there's one that I'm really excited about that we'll shoot next year. And it's still not my passion, passion project, but it's more commercial. And I think it's like the second tick is like, Oh, I can make a film that is commercially successful. I hope unless I really mess it up. Um, so yeah, so that's my plan. So I'm doing a sort of comedy zombie film, hopefully next year.
3: Nice. Uh, let's do one more question. Um, yeah,
1: Question for both of you. I'm actually really curious. What would you say is the biggest compromise that you had to make in order to get these films made for a speech in
2: That's a really good question. Biggest compromise. Money. Yeah, money. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Specifically, too, you said that you went from obviously the line producer saying 400000 to going down to $200,000. Were there specifically then things that you had to cut out of the script or things you had to do to get the, to get the budget down to that 200000 mark?
2: Thankfully, my script was... It was easy. I think it was achievable. There was stuff that we compromised on, definitely. Like we were, a lot of our effects were in camera. So there's a scene where someone cauterizes a wound with like a a ladle that's been lit on fire. And we did that with pigskin. And like we found, I did a lot of research into how to do as much in camera as possible because we just didn't have a budget for vfx but also we found a post production place that would give us a little bit of money and take the post deal and that is so important like making sure you know where your post is going to happen and trying to get them involved as early as possible is like a big key but it was in wales so that was another like compromise was i had to go and edit in wales (laughs) (laughs) which is lovely
1: (laughs) (laughs) i I think we're constantly compromising as filmmakers we set out with this i'm gonna make this this is what it is and things change location changes actor changes things come down you don't get the money you need your vfx budget goes so you're constantly compromising every day on set but also your overall arc of your film It just happens. And I think the more you can be prepared that that is going to happen. Yeah. Like you say, if you looked at your your, your visual images for what you want, and then you go, yeah, but that was a a Christopher Nolan movie. You had 200 million, if if not more. You're doing it on 200 grand or 20 grand or whatever. You, You can't, you can't compete. So your level starts here, but actually, you've just got hope. And continuity is a problem, or uh, an actor gets ill, or the camera doesn't work, or there's, there's so many things go wrong on set every day that you're compromising your vision, you're constantly compromising what you set out to do. And you have to think outside the box and keep your brain worrying when those problems do happen that you can then overcome them you then don't suddenly just go, oh fuck, with this location's just caved in and literally haven't got a location. You've got to literally go, okay, where else can I do this? How else can I shoot this scene? I was shooting a, an advert last week and we were on a pier and was, we had this super big fucking electric car come on for the shoot, but it was late as it is. So we had to come and say, we can't shoot the car. Okay, we'll shoot the ice cream van first. So we'll bring the ice cream van onto the pier. By the time, so I shot all that stuff. By the time the big car came onto the pier, The pier owners suddenly came storming down going, it's too heavy. It's too heavy. The pier's going to fall. Fucking hell, right. I've now now shot all this ice cream stuff, right? But so I went, okay, think, think. Okay, I can use those shots because it was all close. It was tight. Let's move the ice cream van and the car down to outside the bottom of the pier and you can get away with all those shots. So you're instantly compromising like that, but you have to think how can i make this work how can i change it but and if you're on a feature film when you've got so much pressure there's so much shit going on there's problems you really do have to think outside the box and be prepared that shit will go wrong be prepared for it stuff's going to go wrong stuff will happen here i've just got to rise above it and think outside the box and be the leader and just go right make it better do yeah. it yeah
2: and like using your imagination is so important because mm. for rose like most of it takes place in a house but the house that the the houses where we were shooting, you know, one was good for the kitchen, one was good for the bathroom, one was good for the bedroom, and I had to, and one was good for the exterior. So it's actually like a Frankenstein of all these different houses. But the way I shot it is, it looks like one house, and no, thankfully, no one has noticed that like it's a little bit different on the outside to the inside. And coming up with ways that you can make something work is the Biggest asset you will mm, ever have. Totally.
1: And you what you were saying there about people noticing, people don't notice. Like the Dare farmhouse is just a little facade. It was literally a piece of wood in the forest it was just this facade. That was it. That would draw on a fake door on it. looked ridiculous when you were there. But then when you and then inside this little farmhouse door, there's a huge basement and a huge big backlot. But people don't notice. They want to get strapped up in a story and you can sort of get away with stuff at the time you think you can't yeah yeah that's something I learned hugely was you know you get away with you get away with it you have to same as your shorts you get away with stuff right and the same with the feature you you don't intend to do it that way but and looking at your first assembly, you're like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. What have I done? This is horrible. I've made a real fucking mess of it. But you don't. You, you pull it out. You survive. Yeah. All
3: right. Well, I want to thank you guys for uh, having this conversation. And then just to wrap it up, I just want to know, you've already talked a little bit about this, what you guys are working on next, where we can see your work, and what if you could just have one piece of advice to short filmmakers... What would that one piece of advice be?
2: Okay, so I've just shot a four-part BBC One drama called Rules of the Game, which is out on BBC One in January. Please watch it. Um, Thank you. And I'm about to start a Disney Plus show called Extraordinary, which is superheroes. It's very silly. And then hopefully the zombie horror. And my biggest piece of advice is just don't give up and don't stop
1: nice i am in post for wolves of war so i'm literally in the middle of the edit for that at the moment and uh, getting notes back from all sorts of angles which is very difficult dealing with notes from studios and stuff three day millionaire has just started its edit so that both of those will be out next year hopefully fingers crossed um the stranger in our bed which is i think it's released in march april in this country this is my thriller it should, i don't know i haven't seen it for ages now so <laughs> I've, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We were supposed to have a cast and crew the other day they got cancelled for COVID. So I, I, I'm kind of looking forward. That That'll be nice because we'll be seeing a movie in the cinema with people. It'll be fun. Hopefully Hamlet, the beginning of uh, sort of next year. I'm going over to New Mexico just to push it through. Like I say, sometimes you've got to take some bull by the horns sometimes and go, right, I'm going to New Mexico. Let's make things happen. And yeah, there's, there's loads of others. I'm constantly writing stuff and being in, working with people and the right people. And I suppose that's my... Biggest bit of advice, trust in yourself and what you're doing and believe in you more than anyone else and what anyone tells you. But find the right people. If they're not the right people, let them go. Really, it's just you haven't the time to waste if it's not working and it's hard and again if it is the right people make sure you have contracts in place worst things you don't have a contract in place i think anyone can do this i don't think there's any secret formula there's not one path there's not a one box ticks all you are your own secret weapon you are what will make your film happen or not no one else and i think if you take that on board and go it's me i'm going to make this happen it will happen And that's the best bit of advice I can give to anyone. Just believe in it
3: and do it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Big round of applause and looking forward to networking with everybody.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the Filmmakers Podcast today. If you'd like to support our ongoing efforts to bring the filmmaking world to life, have a look at our Patreon page.